Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community and the people that bring community to life. Today's show is part two of my conversation with artist Waddy White, who was my guest for the very first show in January 2017 and returned to join me to celebrate the 150th episode of Lives Radio Show and Podcast. You can listen back to part one of our conversation and hear Waddy talk about his public art including the project's 100 people and paying attention is a form of prayer by downloading the podcast at livesradioshow.com. Our conversation today is being recorded by Zoom. Wally White is a painter, printmaker, and public artist based in Omaha, Nebraska. His work has been featured in exhibitions at the Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art, the Minneapolis Institute of Art, Museum of Nebraska Art, the Telfair Museums, Mint Museum, and many more. And his work is in numerous public and private collections. Wally has been a visiting artist at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, Hastings College, Carleton College, and DePaul University. What is studio has produced recent public art projects in collaboration with Habitat for Humanity Omaha, In Common Community Development, Omaha Healthy Kids Alliance, Omaha Housing Authority, and Omaha Public Schools. Wadi, welcome back to the show. Thank you. I can't believe it's been 150 episodes. It's really amazing. As much as your work is clearly a really artistically talented, gifted, perspective on the world around us. There is a lot of surprise of messaging, aesthetic or narrative in your art, these hidden surprises. They're often tongue in cheek. They're sometimes a little saucy. (laughs) (laughs) And so you reference, uh, I've seen you reference Rembrandt's The Omval. What is Rembrandt's The Omval, and 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 how did you see that, <laughs> and and how maybe yeah. has that informed some of the some of the work you do, and what you're trying to kind of portray with it? Yeah, well, it's it's allowing myself to show my own personality in my work, um, the things that I think are funny, the things that that are saucy. Um, that has been also a sort of a lifelong struggle. And that is about me making my own peace with who I am. And that, you know, accepting me as, as, you know, part of being liberated or, or genuine myself, but the, the public art, the collaborative stuff feels for some reason, like there's a different responsibility with it, that, that it feels like it's saying in allowing someone else's voice um, to have equal or greater volume than mine means that I, don't allow myself to often make those jokes. Uh, so when I was an undergrad, my father, I started becoming an etcher, and my father gave me this uh, Rembrandt Restrike print that apparently he had, he had bought when my family was celebrating my first birthday in Amsterdam. They went to the Rijksmuseum. The Rijksmuseum was selling these things for a couple of 
whatever their their currency was at the time and uh they they picked up one they don't have a lot of value but they um they're a beautiful sort of document so a restrike print is uh the museum takes uh rembrandt's original copper plate that he made his etchings from um, makes an exact copy of it. They scan it, they cut it into another plate. Then they print, make actual prints from that second plate. It's a real print, a real copy of his thing. When I first received it, I was thrilled. I thought like, oh man, this is so cool. This is so cool, right? You know, an actual Rembrandt thing. And then as an, you know, as an artist, as a young artist, um, one of the ways you learn is you look at and copy and, and study hard the work of people who came before you, the work, the work that moves you. And in doing that, you can understand what they are doing, what they're saying, what they're, um, how they do it, why they do it, whatever it is, these little marks, these drawing lines or something. And when I would try to do that with Rembrandt, it just intimidated the hell out of me. Like everything he does is perfect. He's so skilled. He is like, yeah, it's old mastery as old masters get. And in this, it is a tiny little, probably, four inch square etching got this big dilapidated uh old tree a bunch of tangled underbrush a guy in a big floppy hat miles of landscape a whole town boats like all this stuff and this tiny little thing every detail a perfect little uh scrape with a needle through wax remarkable what he could do and every time I would look at it or try to look at it closely, I, feel, I felt like I could hear this voice of some old guy telling me I was never going to be as good as him. Like he was so good and I was not that. And so I fast forward. And uh, when I graduated, uh, we moved back to Chicago. I still felt like I did not have any idea what I was supposed to be doing. And I started working on a, uh, a Fulbright grant. I was recommended from our uh, our State Department to the, the Netherlands, which is where I was wanting to, to study, and specifically the Rijksmuseum. And I realized that like, I needed to uh, get a little bit braver and actually like, be that student that I had not been before. And so I set about as like a first step to actually study this etching. And so after drawing from it for about a half hour, I realized that in the tangled underbrush, in the center of the whole thing was a couple having sex. And it was so surprising. I did not anticipate it at all. It, I was laughing out loud when I saw it. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. I started studying up on like, who else has been looking at this? Like, is this real? Am I making this up that these little marks are what these little, like whether other people read them the same way? I realized that this voice that was in my head telling me how I was never going to be good enough was actually trying to like whisper a joke to me like the whole time. And I was just completely unwilling to, to hear it. Like after I stopped laughing so much, um, I also realized that, you know, these, these voices, these uh, perspectives in this one piece, this perspective that is indicative of this great, great old master. You know, one of the greatest artists who has ever lived in the canon of Western art, that those perspectives, that he is doing this thing that is so dedicated and so beautiful and so high-minded and so profound, that he is, he is discussing things in a visual language that are 
big and as deep as he can. At the same time as he is making these vulgar jokes within that same thing, that those two voices are happening at the same time in all of this work. And that if you can hold both of them in your mind and in your, your feelings, in your emotional reaction to it, that that is what real living a human life feels like. That's what understanding another person is, that they are not, nobody is just these high-minded things that they say when they write perfect prose on uh, a paper. Um, and they are not just the, the vulgar jokes that they think are funny or the innuendos that they, like, they enjoy making people feel uncomfortable at times with or are made themselves to feel uncomfortable at times with. The real experience of that life and any of these lives are are that they are never mutually exclusive, that they are all, uh, it's all improv rules, it's all yes and. And so, you know, in thinking about that and in, in processing that, that feeling and that reaction and that emotion in it, um, I was aware that I was still making work hoping for the approval of somebody. Um, somebody who I also assumed would never approve of me if they knew who I was fully. And that the more I was understanding that I was doing that, the less necessary it was. That I was starting to understand who these people were, that I was hoping for their approval. And either they were dead for a long time, or they were people who already approved of me. And they were people who liked me more than knew, more they knew of me. They liked me genuinely. And allowing myself to be seen, to be known, that would allow somebody to not like something in what I made. This was an unfortunate lesson I had to learn. There really was nothing for someone to grab onto and really love because um, those might be the same thing. And that if I'm trying to make something that's going to please everybody, it's inherently not going to please anybody very deeply. And if I make something that would possibly affect somebody deeply, then at least I affected somebody. That there is, there's a, a much greater connection between me and the work that I make and the somebody who would enjoy it when it shows who I actually am. And so the Omval really, uh, the experience with that one piece, in, in large ways, it's what it has done is it's created a body of, of work that is largely, uh, largely woodcut based because of, um, both because I, I love this connection to the history of the, the making of this, this medium that it, uh, it encourages and enforces people to work and to value things in a, in a way that is significantly different than um, oil painting, than other forms of, of art making, um, that it encourages a voice and a, a manner of storytelling that I've come to understand is vital to my own work. Um, and it makes it more possible. It makes it plausible that I will uh, distribute these in a different way. And so the Omval really shifted a great deal for me. I had no home to rely on Driving around in a passenger van Dreaming of when I'd ever begin To start my life That's when I moved to the city To be on the stage but the curtain had closed You walked in the room and that's when I knew that I 
You have a forthcoming show at the Kaneko, which Correct. is a substantial cultural hub in um, the heart of downtown Omaha, and it, it has international acclaim. And you are producing new work to uh, exhibit later this year. Would you talk a little bit about what what is the artistic and aesthetic philosophy that maybe is underpinning? the work you're creating, and what people might expect. So I started Conversations with Kaneko a little over a year ago. Uh, originally, like we were sort of talking about putting together something fast for a, a show last summer, and then that turned into being too ambitious of a timeline to do uh, correctly the, the things that we were talking about. And then once given a little bit of time, I was understanding that um, in my own history, uh, I've never had a platform like like this show at Kaneko. This is the I've been in museum shows, I've been in group things, I've been um, in other places, but they were they weren't just me. And that this was a uh, an exhibit in the biggest space that 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 the Kaneko has, um, their most prominent space. That they were putting a lot of social capital behind what this statement was going to be. My approach was then to decide that what I, I needed to make in my head the best thing that I, that I could make, something better than I had ever done, something more ambitious, something. something. It needed to reflect who I am. Um, it needed to be my most genuine, liberated version of me, saying things that I believe in and projecting that as, as, as well as I could. And what it has turned into is two bodies of work. They're giving me the entirety of the Botrus space, which is probably 6,000 square feet. It's huge. It is a strange space. It's a, it's a space that is probably more adapted for sculptural things, for things that you enjoy while walking around them as, as physical objects, more than things on the wall. Uh, but it does have large walls. It has these two very, uh, very large things. And it's about 100 feet long. And so what I will be doing is installing about 50 of the 100 people in that. People from all walks of life, people almost entirely from Omaha, people who are uh, social advocates of one sort or another, people who, who have had an influence on, on my life in some way, in some uh, way that I feel has given me a, a debt to them that I uh, don't know how to repay. Um, and then I was going to, then I produced a new body of work to hang in between those. So the way that the, that the work is, uh, or the show is sort of taking shape now will be that on each of the long walls uh, will be lined with a, f- a frieze of these portraits. Each one standing a little bit larger than life size, about eight feet tall. Each one projecting a message that, that came out of a collaboration between myself and that particular individual who modeled for it. Then suspended between them, in the, from the rafters between them, so that there are these two uninterrupted freezes of people. 
will be four large woodcuts, each of them uh, eight by 20 feet, exhibiting the, the carved panels, not the, not the prints. The prints have not, will not have happened yet. And each of those are building off of that same uh, feeling and body of, of work that has grown out of my relationship with Rembrandt and Peter Bruegel and all these printmakers who came before me that they are seeking to show on a scale that hopefully affects how it feels to be in your body in front of it. One frozen moment, a feeling of the one note ringing in the air, one, one present. And then to react to that, to have either things to sit and contemplate, uh, your relationship to space, your relationship to this feeling, to the, the energy of, of this sort of constructed aesthetic experience, or to seek it out visually and find those, those little vulgar jokes that I'm hiding in there so that if, for myself, um, I get self-conscious. I get, uh, there are these little puzzles to figure out. There's these little things to find, these little humorous bits that um, show you my my personality and hopefully if if the person doing that knows me then they they probably see something that feels familiar oh that seems like a joke he would make uh he, he probably thinks that's clever um each one of those is exponentially larger than anything that i've ever that i've ever made i've been working on this nonstop since for the last year and actually at the, at the you know today as we we're recording this like um all four of those pieces are at the Kaneko now I went from, you know, through this entire, this long process of figuring out what these were, how do I find them, how do I make them, how do I, how do I put myself in, this, in the place to have an experience, knowing that I have to grab something vital from that experience and bring it back with me to my studio so that I can um, try to project it into this carved representation of it in a way that feels somehow connected to the, the experience I had at the beginning. I'm excited to see them all together. I know I'll get very nervous. I'll get increasingly nervous as it gets closer, as I get less and less to actually like touch and, and fiddle around with them more that I have to plan or uh, figure out how to structure. Because also this is a, what a crazy time to try to have an art show. We're scheduled to open this show uh, in September and September is a few months away, but there is so much that we don't know between now and then and so much that will surely change. And the one, and the few things that we do know, you know, and the, that constant change is a, is the, you know, there is no constant, but change. Um, and luckily I'm pretty healthy with ambiguity. So uh, I can, I can live with a lot of it. I can, I can be nimble about it, but uh, what that experience is going to be, when September rolls around, will the one thing we know is that it won't be like what experiences have been in the past. We won't have a night where there are 900 people looking at this thing and everybody's drinking and telling me how smart I am. Like that won't happen. That it's going to be far more intimate. That I will probably have a conversation with the first 500 people who see this work. That the 100 people that are up or that will be up, the ones that are going to be in that show, um, are going to be getting seen in a different context than what they are now, where they are up around the city. They're going to be seen in a 
very much a fine art context, a context where there is a certain assumption about the elitism and power of any viewer in it, um, that it feels protected and it feels rare. And I don't know how they will, uh, how they will react in that situation. And it'll be two months before we elect the president. And that's, you know, right now, you know, we can, we can, we can list the layers of craziness that are going on in our world, one on top of the other, on top of the other, on top of the other. And it feels overwhelming. It has felt overwhelming for a long time. Uh, and in the fall, it's only going to get more so, right? It's only going to be more. Like maybe the quarantine will be up or maybe it'll be different. Maybe there will be action about the police brutality protest between now and then, and we will live in a slightly different social tone. Maybe not. Maybe there are things brewing in this country that have not yet exploded that will as well. And it's going to be in that context that we see Emiliano holding an immigrant sign, that we see, uh, you know, Sophia Jawad Wessel uh, challenging gender stereotypes, or we see street artists like Reggie LaFleur uh, painting a design, um, or Hugo Zamorano. You know, all of those, you know, hopefully will bring up uh, questions about who we are, how do we advocate for ideas and people and policies and um, uh, the way of living in, in this state, in this city, in this country, that aren't only about our short-term benefits for us individually, for me individually. And that is really exciting. I know that there is a part of me that has spent the last year making these, uh, making these woodcuts, or making these, these, these big pieces, big compositions that are more ambitious than anything I've done, that are more difficult than anything I've done. They're consciously trying to be the things that I failed at at other parts of my life or other points in my life where I tried to make something that was worth being big. So an idea that was, that was worth putting out that were taking up this space or um, putting my voice out so that the, everyone knows it's me. Things that I, you know, tried to do through grad school and failed. Things I tried to do at other parts of my, in my art making career and felt like they didn't, I didn't know how to do them, that I, I was incapable of doing them. As soon as I said yes, and as soon as I started planning these out, as soon as I started carving the first one, I realized that this was me trying to finish my, my undergraduate comps. The, the projects that I came up with 20-something years ago are still ones that I'm, that I'm trying to, to finish because ideas are easy. I, you know, doing any of them are so hard. Uh, I remember when I, uh, when I left Chicago, I'd been painting the, the lake off and on. I never got it right. I never did. I, the, every time I, lo I looked at the, at the lake, I would spend so much time trying to figure out what it was I was seeing and, and also telling myself that like one day, one day I'm going to get it. One day I'll, uh, I'll, I'll actually, you know, figure this out so that I can make it and understand it. Not just that it looks like it enough to like convince people I can paint a thing that looks like something, but that there was something that if you could make a thing that felt like it, that that would be different. And the last of these giant woodcuts I made was, um, well, it's got a little story too, so maybe I can tell the story. 
So I uh, knew I had to make these things for this. And I knew, I started to understand how the process was was going to work. That I'd, I'd gotten myself up on stage right before Lizzo played at Maha to try to soak that moment, to try to capture something that felt um, the way it feels to stand in front of 11,000 people who are looking at you and cheering, which is rare and is profound. And then bringing that back and realizing that that was what I was really trying to do. I was trying to have this, to see this, put myself, my physical body in this experience where I could see, or feel something that was going to be outside of my ordinary experience that I would would try to grab as much of it as I could. I'll try to bring it back and communicate it in, in some way. And as this was coming around last uh, December, because I also had this terrified voice in my head that I would screw this up, that I would not do it, that I would not be capable of doing it, that I, if I put it off for a moment, that I would never come back, uh, that this was one, my, one, my one time to get to say this thing one time. I also knew that my son just turned 18 and he is going to be going off to college next year. And my relationship as a parent uh, was incredibly important to me. All my life I've dealt with my relationship as a son uh, with parenting that I didn't like. And then as a parent, you understand things differently. It doesn't mean that like they got any better. You just understand what was going on when you were five as well as what's it, what it's like to be a parent of a five-year-old. And I knew that I, it was very important to me to do something with my son, to give him this, this gift of an experience that we shared that he doesn't forget. Something memorable, something important, something deep. And so these two ideas were sort of coming together. And one of the ideas that I thought I could put myself into this experience would be to try to go be near as big an animal in the world as I could where they live in their environment to allow myself to be open to what that feels like. And that turned into um, that it was possible to fly to La Paz, Mexico and swim with whale sharks. Uh, whale sharks that when they are adults can be 80 feet long. They're the biggest fish in the, in the water. And that sounded amazing to me. I had these pictures in my head of what that could look like that I was like, oh, that, that, could be a, that could be a powerful feeling thing. And I was thinking about Simon and I was like, oh, I bet if I took him with me, that would be a, swimming with a giant whale shark. That's a thing we don't forget. And I'll take him to Mexico and we will, I will treat him right and be, you know, I can ensure this great experience to be great. So Time comes for us to, to go to Mexico. Uh, we have our tickets, uh, get up at four o'clock in the morning, grab our passports, grab our bags we pre-packed, like throw those clothes on, get to the, get to the airport, check in, we're fine. Um, go get on the plane, fly to our uh, connecting flight, went through LA. And I sleep all the way to LA, which is, should have been the first like red flag. I can't sleep on planes, I'm a terrible sleeper. Um, me falling asleep in a, in a plane on a chair for three hours uh, probably means I am really overworked. I, my, my brain is uh, difficult. Um, and I wake up and I have two thoughts really quickly. One is that uh, I'm really tired 
and I need coffee badly and I can't wait to go into the airport and get some. And the other is that um, my wallet is in my pants um, on the floor of the laundry room back home in Omaha and I have no driver's license, I have no cash, I have no credit cards and I am two hours away from taking my son to a foreign country. And I have single-handedly done uh, the stupidest thing that I've ever done traveling. And um, if I don't figure out a way to make this work, I will have absolutely messed up the best show that I've ever tried to do, proven to myself that I'm not capable of doing that. And I will have just messed up this, uh, my chance to do the memorable thing with my son, do the thing that he never forgets, the thing that, that he holds on to when his life is different after he has left home. So I have a very panicked two hours of calling everybody I, I can figure out to try to figure out what resources I can put together, um, you know what I what I can get to my phone. I've got Venmo, I've got PayPal, I've got my credit card number, I've got a picture of my driver's license. Hardly any of which is going to really help me. You know, there's some of these things that I've purchased online, um, which are all like I can purchase, I can keep purchasing it online, but I can't really purchase anything in real life. Um, and in sort of the, the, the heat of it, you know, get about halfway through this process of like, <gasps> how do I fix this? How do, I, how, do we, how do we pivot from this moment? Simon realizes that he has his debit card on him and that two years previously, he had his first job where he worked at a restaurant. And he didn't really have much to spend that money on, so he just put it in his checking account. And so we call his bank and get everything okay through that he is going to be taking out a lot of money like in a foreign country pretty soon. And Simon saves the day because of his, uh, you know, because he's a responsible kid, because he uh, has these things on him, because he had that job, because of all these, all these things, he was able to take money out when we got to Mexico, uh, take enough out, that we're able to uh, hire a taxi to drive us two and a half hours from the airport because I can't get you know, Uber to come pick me up because uh, Uber can't go to the airport. We, he, you know, he is able to provide all the cash for the weekend to uh, use his credit card to rebook or his debit card to rebook that whale shark tour that canceled on us the night before. All these things that, that enabled us to go through this experience of, of panic, of shock, of worry that everything is screwed up to somehow being able to recover to uh, still you know create this memorable experience that largely is the the monkey paw version of like the unforgettable thing I really wanted to do with him and then to go swim with whale sharks and realizing that the the reason that our trip was canceled in the first place. The, the, the whale shark trip was because there, there were storms at sea. Uh, we, we thought there'd be storms where we were, which there weren't. It was a beautiful day. It was, it was perfect. And we're only in this little town for like two days. Um, but they were 
uh, it was huge out at, out at sea. It was very windy, which meant that um, it was great for whale sharks because it stirred up all the all the plankton that they were eating. There are these beautiful giants. We could we swam with four of them. Um, you know, and to do that, you take the boat out into the Sea of Cortez. You find them. You uh, they pull up in front of them. A bunch of people jump out. You swim around with them. Couldn't see anything underwater. So every idea I had, like none of those were going to work whatsoever. The waves themselves, the sea itself, was this huge force. This, the waves were gigantic. It was, it was so. It, was, it felt like you were just trying not to drown by by swimming out there. The waves like tore Simon's snorkel right off his face. And so we we came back with this image, this picture that I was I was taking of with a underwater camera that I had purchased to go get some picture of whale sharks, um, of those waves acting on me those waves that that we went through all these these hurdles to sort of get through this 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 thing that became um you know a, a coming of age story for simon that became um the reason why you can't really trust uh, adults <laughs> that story too which uh my brother-in-law uh ex-brother-in-law drew point out that like those are those are actually the same story uh you know your coming of age and your inability to trust your parents or no, like, you know, they're, they're screw ups too. And we brought this, this experience back. And that was the final piece that went into this collection of four massive woodcuts that just got, that just finished in doing that. I realized I got about halfway through and I realized I was trying to make that final thing of the lake. I was trying to, to look at the water and understand what it feels like to be in the water that I was looking at Hokusai, this guy who's been in my head, who's been an inspiration to me for 40 something years and making an homage to him, making something, this does not look like him, even though you can't help but look at it and feel his influence. Um, to do something that I feel doesn't shy away from the people who made me what I am, but allows uh, me to try to recognize them in this moment too even like the idea that you'd get to take a, a trip like this it feels like such an indulgence such a um you know fostering so many privileges and so much uh ability to uh make it possible to have this individual human experience that is so rare that i have never had before and to try to hold on to it and to share it with my son, um, to share it with uh, the people at Koneko, the people who will come in and see it, um, that feels uh, rare and profound. And again, like a gift that I don't know what I could have ever done to warrant that. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
that is such a glorious story. It's really compelling piece of art. So many layers and ripples. I just love that. There's only four pieces, right? And each of them is so big and has so much detail in it, so much stuff in it that there's there's certainly a uh, uh, like a, a pop or a, an initial presence, um, but they're meant to be compelling. They're meant to be sat with. Um, and I think that with Kaneko, we're going to be filming a, um, a, an interview, a story, a, a something with each one of them to talk mm -hmm. about the project, to talk about this particular piece, to tell the story that comes along with it. None more than this one feels so connected to the story of it that like there is, there's a certain sense of uh, like, it's got this feeling of power to it, of anarchy to it, of threat to it, of uh, uh, being destabilized, but at the same time being, everything's like very in place. There's, there is hidden stuff in there, but there, it's like four whale sharks. So there's a sense of like, there's something under the surface. All of which I feel like when I tell the story makes a lot, like you can place those feelings in me as a father, uh, in me screwing everything up, um, not being able to be this version that I, I want to think I am, this person who can care for my son, can be in charge of everything, can like be some sort of Superman. And instead I f everything up. And it's only because he is put in the, op in the place where he can be the hero for once, where he, there's a space for him to do the thing that clearly makes it possible for us to do any of it at all. Um, you know, that puts the position of the viewer, which is also standing for the position of me, um, in a way where it feels like, oh, ah, this also informs why this thing is unsteady, why this thing is, why it feels threatening, why it feels like you're struggling through something that also is in this story that is connected to this real world thing that, that happened that hopefully humanizes me as a, as a person, as a maker, um, connects me to a slightly larger personal vulnerable world um, so that the viewer can sort of be in there, in there with me. I think that they are connected. I feel like, um, I have to tell a story. I have to like, like I, I think the titles for all these things are going to be super short or kind of superficial or kind of, uh, you know, something that doesn't seem like I'm uh, not telling you what kind of story it is, but there has to be something else that helps understand that I'm a flawed person trying to explore um, this experience. And that if the process of doing it is, simple, it's understandable, then that means that um, the doing of it isn't reserved for only people like what someone could think I was. That it's, it's more populist than that, it's more open than that. That there is something that's, there is something about art that it, res that it, it responds to you as a person, to your interest, to your curiosity, to your work to your labor you you know if you make five paintings you are five paintings good right like you there's a million things you don't know you make a hundred paintings you're only a hundred paintings good there's still a million things you don't know you make a thousand paintings you're a significantly different painter than you were at a hundred and there's 
less things you don't know, but there's still so many things you don't know. But this meritocratic thing of you want to be a better drawer, draw. You want to, you know, you want to understand what that poem means, read that poem a few more times. I would look at Rembrandt and think he's just a magical person far before I accepted that he's been drawing since he was two, you know, that he's been drawing all day, every day since he was two, uh, that uh, he long ago stopped worrying about how you do it. And all he's only worried about what you do or when, when I make this, this is what it does. Um, this is you know, why you believe him when he's, when he's drawing, that it's not about how do I convey this emotion with this expression? How do I draw that guy in a floppy hat? He no longer has to think about that part. But uh, yeah, I think the hope is that if I can make what I do understandable, um, simple, human, that it feels like uh, the only real like rare thing that I think I did in that or that I think I usually can do is that I can pivot, that I can keep going, that I am not so committed to the idea that I had because there's always a better idea that is built on that, that, you know, I'm smarter once I've finished it than when I began, that if I make a thing after I make that Lizzo uh, print, then I'm smarter than I was when I made that Lizzo print. It should be better. It should be, it's, I should move further than what I could there. Um, that there's something of that that I hope is also a, a teachable thing. Cause I do, the idea of being a mentor is strange, isn't it? Cause it feels uh, like, People who have mentored me, I feel uh, are so rare. I hold them in such high esteem, um, certainly way higher than I would feel comfortable with someone holding me. Right? Like, um, and I, I know that I feel like, you know, I'm mentoring a young artist because I want them to make something great. And I want to see the great thing they make because I think that they are the only one who's going to be able to make it. Um, and that feels selfish. That feels like me wanting um, this certain kind of life. And it's, it's a, it's a self-interest rightly understood. Like I want their success. I want them to shine because I want to, I want so badly to live in a world where they shine uh, that doing anything, is, you know, to help that is great. Um, but I also don't feel like I can, I feel like mentor is not a thing you can call yourself. Uh, that like if someone who I am talking to takes something valuable out of our relationship and they think of me as a mentor, great. That's, that's wonderful. That's wonderful for them. Um, if I allow myself to do it, then I'm going to think that I'm, uh, I'm, I'm making something petty out of it that I'm, I'm pulling uh, their appreciation of something that we shared. And trying to say, like, that's because I'm great. That's because I'm so smart. Uh, and the truth is, it's never really that. It's that, like, we talked about something out loud. And in the moment of it, uh, they had an insight. They had an insight. Um, and I was there to be witness of it. Uh, but I'm not responsible for their insight. I couldn't give it to them. I can just be, be there, too. Um, interesting so like, how how you're holding that space you you hold a space both um for them for their practice for their voice uh you're doing the same i think with your art you're holding a space for a, for your own purpose absolutely you're you're infusing putting yourself into your art but again your public art is very much a uh, an attempt to 
hold some kind of artistic space for people's voices and narratives and stories and lives to be to be heard interpreted yeah. expressed yeah i mean it's it's i don't know there's a part of me that that is suspicious every time i i take myself serious for a moment because it feels like i'm i'm clearly overlooking some glaring flaw of mine and every everybody who is objectively witnessing me would just be like oh oh i can't believe you're talking like that again um, it's funny. Like I've, I've been having this thing for a while, right before COVID hit, like, um, like only like a week, I guess, before COVID hit, I had a, a, a little show with Barber where we each put up a, a piece at, um, outer spaces and Barber was like asking me questions and like, and he asked me why I was so ambitious, why I kept wanting to make big things. Why, like, why do I challenge myself in the way that I, that I do? And cause like, because I clearly do. Like, there's a reason why I do all of that. Why, why these woodcuts needed to be so much bigger than anything I could do. Why the murals are all big. Why, why I find the harder way of doing it that I think is better, and I make my peace with doing the harder way. And I, t- I told the story about seeing the first great painting I'd ever seen, the painting that changed my life because it affected me so much, and that was totally true. And then I kept reflecting on it because I didn't feel like that was actually like the whole, the whole story. And so for the next several weeks, I just kept thinking like, what was the real answer there? What was, what was the genuine thing I should, have, I should have said? And I came to the realization that I've never really consistently felt loved. That I never, I never felt like it was a thing that I warranted or that people were going to give me or that uh, was really plausible, that somehow I had to fool the world into there being a situation where somebody would grant me that. And that feeling like you had done a profound thing would make me feel like I was worthy of somebody doing it, of somebody actually caring about me as a, as a person, caring about my well-being, caring about how I felt or how I lived. It is a strange thing because, I mean, obviously it's, I'm aware of like my, my stupid dysfunctional childhood. I'm aware of how much stuff of this is like all like childhood stuff that I'm still like, well, still got that. So that's great. There's more where that came from. Um, but this feeling of like, if only, if only I could impress somebody, if only I could make someone think that I was, was special, then maybe, then maybe someone would do something and I could feel that like that was all of this is sort of to the end of you know putting myself on stage and you know before Lizzo comes out is you know the first step of like oh now I'm in a moment where something feels great and and amazing and maybe if I hold on to this I can create something that would be so good that someone would feel uh like they wanted to make me feel that way all the time and that so much of this is me trying to find a way of being able to accept that kind of feeling, that kind of love, um, of finding it, of finding people who do care for me in that, in that way, in that way and allowing myself to see it. Um, it all feels very self-indulgent to like go through that, but it's, it's still like uh, hard to know what to do with that. Hard to know how to like work towards healing up whatever that little little scar is 
uh, all these things too, like they, they dovetail into it. My guest today has been the painter, printmaker, and public artist, Waddy White. Waddy, thank you so much for being on the show. No, it's been so great. So great to talk to you. It's been great to talk to you, man. I miss you. I miss so many people, but oh, it'd be great to see you in real life. That's the end of this week's show. You can listen again to this show and others by subscribing to the podcast at livesradioshow.com and find us on social media at livesradioshow. The music playing you in and playing you out each week was created specially for the show by Andrew Bailey. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden, and this is Live's Radio Show and Podcast. Join me next week for fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, and more.